The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're getting revved up for the North American eclipse. We'll talk with astronomy writer Lisa Grossman about what to expect when you're expecting the lights to go out. Then we'll talk with Trey Winter, Elise Ricard, and Kirsten Kirby Patel about how you can help science on the big day. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And I, like millions of other people, am getting super excited. Why? On August 21st, 2017, our moon is going to pass in front of the sun, and it's going to be awesome. To tell us all about it, I'm here with Lisa Grossman, the astronomy writer at Science News. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, let's start very basic. What is an eclipse? An eclipse is when the moon, the sun, and the earth all line up such that one blocks the other. So a solar eclipse is when the moon comes between the earth and the sun, but a lunar eclipse is when the earth comes between the sun and the moon. So this one is going to be the moon blocking out the sun. Okay. What happens if the sun comes between the earth and the moon? That never happens because it's farther away than the moon is. I'm just saying we have a lunar yeah, good eclipse question, though. and a solar <laughs> eclipse and the apocalypse. <laughs> I just wanted to get that in there. Good job. <laughs> And most people talk about this particular solar eclipse. There's going to be about two minutes or so of total darkness if you are under totality. What is totality and what does that mean exactly? So the moon will only block the sun completely from a certain zone underneath it, basically from the perspective of the moon. If you're looking down at the earth, the moon's shadow is falling on a stripe that kind of, for this eclipse, will go across the continental U.S. from Oregon down to South Carolina. But from elsewhere in the continent, and also Alaska and Hawaii and parts of the Pacific, um, you can see a partial eclipse, which is just the moon kind of taking a bite out of the sun. So you can still, you're, you're in the moon's shadow, but not as much, is the one way to think about it. The totality is that zone where the moon completely blocks out the sun and you don't get any sunlight at all for two-ish minutes. And you mentioned that we get about two minutes of totality and we've been reading a lot about two minutes or so of total of total darkness if you're under the totality. But there's going to be a longer period of time where the moon is kind of taking a bite out of the sun, as you mentioned. How long will the total solar eclipse take? Right. So if you're in the path of totality, the moon should take about an hour and a half from when it touches the edge of the sun to cut across the solar disk before completely covering it up. And then you get your two minutes of totality, and it'll take another hour and a half to exit the disc. So it's the a whole full show. three-hour show. Yeah. Now, eclipses are very cool to people like me who are down on the ground, but astronomers now have giant space telescopes. So if astronomers can kind of see eclipses all the time, why are they excited about this one? Because they are very excited. Yeah, this is a good question. So the telescopes that we have on the ground and in space that watch the sun need to block out the sun's bright disc, just like the moon does. Um, in order to see the part that everyone's excited about, which is the corona, which is the sun's atmosphere. And that's where most of the interesting physics happens. The, the disk of the sun has interesting physics going on also, but um, some of the biggest questions that we have about how the sun works can only be answered by looking at the corona. And also some of the things that affect the Earth the most, like coronal mass ejections and solar flares and things that can send charged particles heaving towards the Earth where they can 
cause auroras or knock out satellites or all kinds of exciting things like that. That all happens in the corona too. So the corona is really the the star, even though the sun is the star. Um, but this, the telescopes that we have have to use a artificial, they're called a coronagraph. So they, they block out the sun um, so that they can see the corona. And those have to be bigger than the actual disk of the sun in order to protect the telescopes from um, stray photons that could come in and ruin the image or damage the telescope or um, anything like that. So you miss out on most of the coronagraphs that the telescopes are equipped with are um, twice the radius of the solar disk. So they go from, if you if you count from the middle of the sun out to the edge is one solar radius, they go out another solar radius after that. So that middle zone is like a donut around the sun from one to two solar radii where we almost never see it. Um, except during a solar eclipse. Oh, so we're actually missing a lot of it with the giant space telescopes. Yeah, the telescopes are great. They can look in more wavelengths than you know our eyes, but they don't show you everything. And why do coronagraphs have to cover so much more of the disk? Um, partly it's because they could damage themselves by by letting... It's because the um, no telescope has perfect pointing, so they can drift or, or the coronagraph could drift, and that could let in some sunlight, which could blind the telescope. And there's also these things at the edge of a of a sharp disk where light gets distorted, um, and that doesn't happen with the moon because it is far enough away from the telescopes that we're using to observe it on the ground or even in an airplane that those kind of edge effects aren't really a problem anymore. Now, scientists you've mentioned are super, super interested in the corona. Why is the corona so important? You mentioned things like bursts of ions coming to get us. (laughs) What's so important about the corona? Um, the big solar burps that the sun gives off are, are all, they, they happen in, they're like, uh, bits of the atmosphere of the sun, which is all extremely hot charged plasma. Um, and sometimes the sun just like flings some of it out into space. And sometimes that hits planets and sometimes that's not great. Uh, they think that, oh, and also not even when all this like violent stuff happens, but under normal circumstances, the sun is just streaming charged particles all the time in something called the solar wind. And, uh, scientists think that that's part of how Mars lost its atmosphere. Mars used to have a much thicker, wetter atmosphere, we think, based on, um, the sort of geological features we see on the ground. And it doesn't now. Um, and one way it could have lost it is a, a orbiter called Maven that is studying this. The solar wind could have you know, bashed into uh, the Martian atmosphere and stripped a lot of it away. So, and that doesn't happen on Earth mostly because the Earth has a strong enough magnetic field that it can kind of push the solar wind and keep it out into space. It can guide it around the Earth. But the the parts of the sun that affect the Earth the most all happen in the corona or all all originate in the corona. Um, and there's also the bits of the sun that are the most mysterious, the things we don't understand um, and can't really understand by our normal telescopes because they block this part. Uh, the corona is millions of degrees hotter. No, the corona is millions of degrees Celsius. The surface of the sun is only 6,000 degrees Celsius. And there's this transition zone right in the middle. Um, that's literally what they call it. It's just called the transition zone, where the temperature leaps from 6,000 to 10,000 to millions of degrees. And we do not know why. So some of the things that astronomers are going to be looking at during the eclipse are possible ways that this coronal heating could be going on. And do do they have any like hypotheses as to why the corona is hotter than the sun? I mean, that seems really yeah. to defy the laws of physics. 
source. Right. You Normally you move away from a heat source and it gets cooler, but not with the sun. So it has to be dumping a lot of energy into the corona somehow. Most of that energy we already know is stored in the magnetic field, um, or that I think is the thing that is most likely to store it. We know magnetic fields can store energy and the sun has a strong one. The corona's magnetic field is a lot weaker. So one of the things we're going to try to do is measure the, the corona's magnetic field directly. There are a couple other things they're going to try to look for that could carry energy from the surface of the sun into the magnetic field of the corona. Um, like they're called alphan waves. They're sort of like if the magnetic field lines of the corona were a guitar string and you plucked it, it would vibrate and that would carry energy. Um, so that's that's an alphan wave. So they're looking for evidence of that happening. And I think that they've seen them in the outer corona, but not in the inner or the mid corona. And there are other things called nanoflares or nanojets, which the nanoflares were first thought of um, as being a billionth of the energy of a normal solar flare. I think that those terms are a little bit fuzzier the way they're used now, but that was the original idea. And those could be kind of going off all the time, like... Um, like popcorn, but they're or like a flickering light that sort of all added up. Like each each individual little burst would be too little to make much of a difference. But if they're all happening together at the same time, if this is going on all the time in the in the corona, then that could be enough to heat it up. But we've never seen. Like I think there have been theoretical studies saying that nanojets could do it, but we haven't seen any. And how are scientists going to? look at this during the eclipse? What are they going to do? They're doing a bunch of things. So um, there's some groups that are flying instruments on airplanes to try to extend totality a little bit more. So if you can chase the eclipse's shadow, you can get four or six, maybe six and a half minutes of darkness to collect data during. And also that gets you above the atmosphere. So um, some of those instruments are looking in the infrared, which is where it's a wavelength of, of light that senses heat. And that's particularly sensitive to the magnetic field. And the water in the atmosphere absorbs some infrared wavelengths. So putting an infrared telescope on an airplane and getting it up to 50,000 feet really helps you out there. And another thing they're looking at is polarized light because that's sensitive to what the electrons in this hot charged plasma are doing. And I was really surprised to find out that scientists are not just studying the sun, they're going to look at Mercury, which seems like it would be totally unrelated. Why is an eclipse a good time to look at the planet Mercury? Yeah. I was surprised by this one, too. I think this is really cool. So Mercury is just hard to look at most of the time because it's towards the sun and it's really close to the sun. So sometimes you can see Venus, like Venus is, is the morning star because it's visible at sunrise and sunset because it is in the direction of the sun. And so when the sun is setting, you can see Venus. Mercury, same idea, but it's even closer and even smaller. So closer to the sun rather than it's farther from Earth. Um, so it's just really hard to see it. And when you try to look at it with a telescope, you can get some stuff, but it's just there's this big, enormous star sitting right next to it that swamps your observations. And we NASA sent a, um, an orbiter to orbit Mercury. It was really difficult to get it into orbit because there was this huge gravitational thing sitting there trying to pull everything towards it. Ugh, the sun um, ruins everything. It's so greedy. <laughs> um, but we, we've had an orbiter orbiting Mercury from 2011 to 2015 and that told us a lot but not everything um so there's going to be a team that will put uh, an instrument on one of these airplanes trying to look at mercury and trying to make the first thermal map in specific wavelengths it can help 
determine what the subsurface is made of. So what do we know about the subsurface of Mercury so far? Is it like Mars or or Earth? I mean, is it is it rock? What is it? <laughs> it is rock. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a uh, um, it's regolith, which is uh, the term that planetary scientists use for stuff that's like soil, but not really soil because it doesn't have biological elements in it. Um, so it's dirt or ground up rock. And Mercury's regolith has more, um, they're called volatile elements than we expected, things that evaporate really easily. And you would expect that Mercury had this violent past. It's, it's all covered in craters, so we know it's been hit by other, other planetary bodies a lot. And it's also right next to the sun, so you would think that the things that evaporate easily would have done so already, but it's managed to hold on to a lot more of them than we expected. And finally, even Einstein is going to be put to the test during this eclipse, even though he's dead. What do solar eclipses have to do with general relativity? So there was a very famous eclipse in 1919 that an astronomer named Sir Eddington um, took photographs of the positions of stars while the sun was eclipsed. So you could see where the star, the sun's stars come out during eclipses because the sun goes away. It's amazing. Um, actually, I, I say that I've never seen a total solar eclipse myself. This is going to be my first one. So ask me in a couple of weeks <laughs> how amazing it is. Yay. Uh, but so Einstein predicted that um, because Einstein's whole idea with general relativity was that space time is one material sort of that uh, permeates the universe and massive things in space time warp it and can tell light to bend around massive bodies like the sun or like the earth or like a black hole. Um, and so one of his predictions when he first published the theory of general relativity was that you should be able to see stars in different positions from how they normally appear during a total solar eclipse. Because when when you're looking at the stars and the sun is not in the way, then they have one position. But if the sun is between you and the, and the stars, the path that the light has to take to get around or to get to you from behind the sun, it gets guided around the sun. Um, so Sir Eddington took photographs of the sun and these stars during this eclipse in 1919. And then he actually had to wait six months to compare to where the regular positions of these stars are with respect to each other. Uh, but it was it was right. It was the stars were not where they were predicted to be. Um, or they were where Einstein predicted them to be. They were not where they should have been if there hadn't been any general relativity going on. So this was a big vindication of Einstein's theory, and it made him famous, and it was in all the newspapers. And um, and since then, we've had much, much, much more precise tests of general relativity, and we're really pretty sure it's correct um, to a point. It doesn't play well with the other major theory of physics, which is quantum mechanics, and then there's discussion of one of them maybe we'll have to give at some point Point, maybe it's going to be general relativity, but mostly it works. And so, but um, the technology has gotten good enough now that you can basically buy off the shelf, really expensive, but still like amateur grade um, cameras and telescopes and equipment. And you can just go out and do this experiment yourself and show that general relativity is correct. So there's some astronomers and, and astronomy enthusiasts who are going to go do that during this eclipse also. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Lisa has written a large number of explainers about all things Eclipse, and we have linked to all of them at scienceforthepeople.ca. Lots of scientists will be checking out the Eclipse, but sometimes they can't take their data alone. So next, we'll be hearing about how citizen science projects want to turn the solar event into a treasure trove of data. 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. When the solar eclipse passes across North America, millions of people will be looking at the sky through glasses or pinhole cameras. They may be following along, watching live streaming video, but people who are visually impaired won't necessarily be able to see the darkness fall. But they could hear it or feel it. That's the idea behind Eclipse Soundscapes, a project focused on creating an accessible solar eclipse. I'm here with Dr. Henry Trey Winter, an astrophysicist for the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and the mind behind Eclipse Soundscapes. Trey, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, the solar eclipse will not just be about sight and light. There will also be sound. What can people expect to hear during a solar eclipse? Well, of course, that all depends on where you are. So if you're in an urban landscape, the thing that you can expect to hear are people's reactions, which are going to be profound during the eclipse. Basically, daytime is going to turn into two minutes of moonlit nighttime. Uh, almost instantaneously. And that is going to have a powerful reaction uh, to people, and they will express that reaction in a multitude of ways, one of which is sound, which we're hoping to record. Now, if you're in a more rural area, you might not hear as many people reacting as once. You might hear your friends, but you might also hear some changes in the natural sounds around you. And one of the things that we're really excited about here at the Eclipse Soundscapes Project is getting recordings from wildlife areas, seeing how different species react uh, to the change between day and night. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence showing that species like crickets, frogs, certain types of songbirds react very strongly to day becoming night. And this is because unlike uh, larger mammals like you and I, they don't rely on a circadian rhythm, a body clock to tell time. They depend on day-night cycles as evidenced by light and dark. So one of the stories that got me started down this road was a friend of mine telling me uh, about when he was first, when he witnessed his first eclipse, that as soon as the moon fully covered the sun, what we call second contact in the eclipse, and they became that full moonlit night, um, crickets automatically started chirping instantly, like somebody had flipped on a switch. And then during third contact, and that's the point where the moon just moves off the sun and the first rays of sunlight start peering around the edge of the moon, those crickets switched uh, directly off and were silent. And so we're not sure about what species are really affected uh, by an eclipse about how long they are confused by the eclipse, what the recovery times are. And we're hoping that uh, in partnership with the National Park Service and citizen scientists, we can start to determine what animal species are more strongly, less strongly affected via the eclipse as evidenced by how they change their bioacoustical chorus, the sounds that they make. But I think equally exciting is how the eclipse is going to change human endeavor. So not just people looking up 
and seeing the uh, complicated, beautiful corona of the sun for the first time with their eyes during an eclipse. But also, too, as people stop and gaze and wonder, how does that change human endeavor? How does that change car patterns and people on bikes and all the different things that kind of are always there, persistent in the background that we never notice until they're absent. And these are the kind of things and experiences uh, that we're hoping to get, again, from our partnership with the National Park Service, uh, some friends of ours in the physics department, and Brigham Young's uh, Idaho campus physics department, and with the help of citizen scientists across the nation. And you talked a little bit about taking advantage of sound changes during the eclipse. Can you talk to me about how you came up with the idea of coming up with an accessibility app? You actually were designing exhibits for museums, is that right? That's correct. So I was uh, designing museum exhibits, not because I am a museum designer or an exhibit specialist. That is uh, a very specialized and highly trained skill that some people have. I'm an astrophysicist. I study the sun primarily. Uh, I was working on this great instrument called the Atmospheric Imaging Assembly, or AIA, which is a suite of four telescopes that look at the sun 24-7, 365, from this great vantage point uh, of Earth orbit. They're on a NASA satellite called the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which launched in February of 2010. And the imagery is just so stunning. The, there is no way that a person cannot look at these images of the sun being dynamic, loops evolving, changing, flares going off that are the size of our entire planet times five. Huge wisps of matter leaving the sun and going out into interplanetary space that sometimes intersect with Earth. These are images that not only I as a scientist find powerful, but anyone that lives on planet Earth uh, typically finds to be powerful because it gives us a sense of where we are in the, our solar system as a whole. And I d- uh, developed some specific technologies that had made the production of video walls uh, less expensive. So a video wall is putting together a multitude of smaller TV screens in a way that it acts as one giant screen. And commercially, these were very expensive. Uh, I like to break things apart and put them back together in new and interesting ways. And I was breaking apart uh, gaming uh, graphics cards for video games and putting them back together and putting the software together in a way that we can very inexpensively build these video walls. And you need these video walls because my images are 16 million pixels large. You need basically nine high-definition screens to show these images pixel per pixel. And I was having a great time developing these video walls for museums. And I was at a museum uh, one day, and they had an accessible exhibit. And I was like, this is fantastic. I haven't thought about this. And I went to go see the exhibit, and it was an Egyptian death mask. And, of course, the Egyptian death mask is under glass because you can't let everybody touch something that's 3,000 years old. And I was sitting there looking at it, and it was just beautiful and ornate and uh, was finely crafted and was something that was meant to be buried and never seen by humans again. I thought it was amazing. And I looked over at the label that uh, explained uh, the design and building of this mask, and I noticed that the accessibility component were two lines of Braille. 
one line telling the name of the object and the second line saying the date that the object was created. And I just thought that that was in no way imparting the experience of that object that I had. And I was honestly somewhat a, a little bit offended by that. And uh, like, how could people, you know, call this an accessible exhibit when you just know the name and the date? And then when I stepped back for a second and thought about it, I realized that I didn't even have that level of accessibility for the blind and visually impaired population on my video walls. And I had worked with uh, an astronomer who's blind and visually impaired in the past, Dr. Wanda Diaz-Merced. And the ideas of, you know, accessibility and how you translate um, highly visually processed data, data that's made for the sighted, how do you make that accessible to the blind? And that realization with the background of working with Wanda set me on the path that I'm on now, which is how do you have universally designed exhibits? Not exhibits that are designed for people who are blind and visually impaired, not music uh, exhibits that are designed for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, not museum exhibits that are designed for women, girls, boys, or scientists, non-scientists. How do you have immersive exhibits that engage people with science, that engages everyone with a capital E? And really, in order to do that, since astronomy and astrophysics is such a primarily visual science, I think you really do have to start with designing tools for people who are blind and visually impaired and then branch out for there to, from there to include everyone else in the process. Now, you mentioned that you wanted to create kind of this accessibility for the visually impaired. How do you go about taking this very visual thing, the, the solar eclipse, and creating an accessible app? What does that require and what does that app look like? Uh, so what it requires is what uh, all science requires, and that is failing a lot, <laughs> being resilient, and learning from your mistakes and trying again, because it is a difficult and imposing challenge. Um, one of the key steps, I thought, was to make sure that people who are blind and visually impaired were part of the process in every step. Uh, I hired Dr. Wanda Diaz-Merced as a consultant on this project from day one to make sure that we got her input, her experience, her position as an astronomer who's blind and visually impaired is almost unique. Um, but now we're, I'm having other people who are blind and visually impaired also working with the app and telling us what we got right and what we got wrong. So I think having the community that you're designing for as part of your design team is uh, necessary uh, in order to make something that's truly useful. The other thing that requires is imagination. Um, you know, turning visual information into non-visual information is something that's not standard. You can't, you know, make a small refinement on something that's never been done before. So having a bit of imagination and being able to try out a bunch of different crazy ideas to see if any of them work, I think, is a very key uh, point, not only in the design for people who are blind and visually impaired or have other accommodation needs, but also too, just in the principle of science and, for me, life in general. You have to be willing to fail in order to um, you know, make the next best version. So what we did is we failed often and quickly, and we decided that really the images of of the sun, what was important about those images and what was important about the images of the sun during an eclipse was the fact that since the bright photosphere or surface of the sun, the part of the sun that we're most used to here on Earth, because that's what produces all the visible light that we see from the ground, 
When that part is blocked, all of a sudden you can see this outer atmosphere of the sun, the solar corona. And that corona has a lot of structure. It has many, many different patterns that are distinct and unique and that are evolving. And so we set about thinking about how we can give people who are blind and visually impaired access to these structures that all of their sighted uh, peers are going to be seeing live in real time on the day of the eclipse. And so we decided on a two-prong approach. The first part is having professionals at the National Center for Accessible Media look through the images of past eclipses, teaching them what these different structures were, why they were important, what shapes they uh, might see during the time of the eclipse. And they have a specially trained team that goes through and illustratively describes the content of images in a way that are accessible to the blind and visually impaired. And this is a skill that I did not have, and it would take a long time for me to develop. So I'm very, very happy to be partnering with National Center for Accessible Media on this because they have a way of constraining the vocabulary of describing these images to a shared vocabulary that people with low vision or no vision would understand. And having a conversation with a different group of people requires that shared vocabulary, which I and my team are just in the beginning phases of learning. So that's the first uh, way that we are handling this um, daunting idea of bringing the eclipse to people who are blind and visually impaired. But along with those descriptions, we wanted people to have a way to explore what was going on during an eclipse themselves, independently, without somebody telling them what was going on. And what we came up with is what we're calling the rumble map. Now, what the rumble map does is it takes those images of the sun at any point, but right now for the eclipse, and it converts the images of uh, the changes in light and dark and color in the images into a signal that is then sent to your phone as you move your finger across all the different structures of the corona. And what that signal does is produce a series of unique tones in the phone's speakers. And those tones were specially designed to not only give you audible information about how things were changing in the image as you scroll over it, but they were specifically designed to shake your phone, to rumble your phone, so that you could get some kind of haptic feedback. You could feel the corona as you were investigating it with touch. And I will tell you, that is a fun toy to play with. Uh, if you're sighted, blind, visually impaired, no matter who you are, I've seen uh, lots of people play with this tool. And just it adds so much to the experience when you can actually get the sensation of touch. And I must say, I've played with it for hours myself. Now, these are the two things that will be available during the eclipse, the rumble map and the audio descriptions. But you're also going to be asking citizen scientists to help out. What do you need them to do? That's absolutely right. So what we need citizen scientists to do is to record their local soundscapes. How are things changing in your local area? And on our website, we have a uh, instruction packet for how you can do that. So uh, you can take whatever recording device that you have, whether it be just a recorder on your phone 
Uh, there are these old things called audio cassette tapes. If you have one of those with a recorder, you can go out. I know several birders that are planning to go out with the highest end recording equipment uh, that money can buy and record how birds are going to change uh, their bioacoustical chorus, their bird songs during the eclipse. So record as much information as you can. What we uh, really need are those recordings and then your position, where you took that recording at, and when you started that recording. And we can fill in all of the blanks from there and find out what species might be uh, hidden in those recordings. Uh, we can add information about the weather, how much of the eclipse you're showing. All that information we're going to add later after the citizen scientists upload this information to our central uh, cloud-based uh, database. And this database is being designed in such a way so that it is easily searchable, not just by scientists, not just by ornithologists and and, uh, and um, sociologists and archaeologists that might be interested in how different sounds change. I'm also making it open and accessible to artists, people who might want to do pieces of um art using sound, um, visual uh, audio recordings, um, also, and we are designing the metadata, the information about the data that we're recording in such a way that it is easily searchable for everybody, including people who are blind and visually impaired. And that is one of the key differences in what we're doing uh, than some of the other uh, things that I've seen. So we hope to get a lot of use of the database after the eclipse. Of course, it takes a lot of time to upload this information, to process it, to put it into the database. So we're not going to be able to have that on the day of. And what we're planning to do is have this massive database that's filled by people recording, citizen scientists recording their own local soundscapes and the changes and variations that they've experienced, along with professional recordings by the National Park Service to have the largest collection of soundscapes changes, changes during an eclipse. And I think that we'll see some amazing new science that I can't even vision at this point from that. But I also hope that it, people find it inspiring and engaging and make great art from it as well. And how many people do you hope you'll actually get to do some sound recordings? I hope the whole United States does something. Uh, but we've got over 200 people already on our mailing list ready to go. So uh, for our project that spun up this quickly, I actually think that that's pretty amazing. I want to make sure that we have people in diverse areas, rural, urban, uh, deep wilderness, New York City, um, you know, Dayton, Ohio, everywhere across the U.S. Uh, I would be, I'd be extremely happy if uh, it was more than just me and my mom <laughs> recording uh, these eclipses. But I would be really happy if we had enough people to include the diversity of experience of the U.S. experiencing this eclipse. Do people need to be under totality to participate with their data? Absolutely not. Um, we, you know, there is a strong focus on totality. Um, an eclipse is far more powerful if it is 100%. It is a different experience than a partial eclipse. But the entire North American continent is going to experience a partial eclipse. And to me, that is scientifically valuable. 
how does this certain species of insect respond differently to a 50% eclipse than it does a total eclipse? That is interesting and engaging. So I would actively encourage people, no matter where you are, to record your local soundscapes during the eclipse. And can people get the app for free? People can get the app for free. It is going up on the App Store for beta testing. On uh, Monday, August 7th, you can uh, sign up for our beta testing program and download the app and use it just as you would normally. And then we hope to have the full live version on the App Store shortly after that. Well, Trey, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Hey, Bethany, thank you so much. I've had a great time. You can learn more about Dr. Winter's Eclipse Soundscape Project at scienceforthepeople.ca. We've heard about what we will see, and we've heard what scientists will do and ways that people can experience the eclipse. But as Dr. Winter pointed out, humans are not the only species that will see the sky go dark. What about the animals? To find out how they react, we're going to need some more citizen science. Most people in the United States have heard that a solar eclipse is coming. Some of us are probably going about our lives as normal, while others are getting super excited. But when the sky goes dark over a swath of states, not too many humans are actually going to be surprised. But animals and plants are not tuning into the evening news, and their Wi-Fi signal is terrible. What will they do when the light grows dim and the temperature drops? Well, scientists want to know, and they might need your help to find out. I'm here with Elise Ricard, the public program supervisor at the California Academy of Sciences, to talk about their Eclipse Citizen Science program, Life Responds. Elise, thank you for being here. No problem. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, the eclipse itself is going to be pretty short, but it's also going to get really super dark. What do scientists know so far about how animals might react to this situation? So far, a lot of what we know is anecdotal. Pretty much anyone who's had the opportunity to see a total solar eclipse before has some kind of story of, often for the most part, birds going silent in the background or something else along those lines. Stories that have been told amongst other people who've gotten the chance to see an eclipse or to get other people excited and inspired to go see one themselves. There have been a couple studies done to try to get specific responses of certain animals. However, they do tend to be a little bit challenging. Eclipses run on an approximately 18 month cycle. So they're not something that, they're not a, something that comes up on a regular basis, um, enough that we could really do long term scientific studies. So, so what we're hoping to do is to get as many people involved, as many citizen scientists as we can to make as many observations as they're able to. Uh, one of the things that there aren't a lot of right now are multiple types of scientific observations. And there have been some studies done in the past, such as a couple research projects with how spiders respond to the change in light and temperature that was similar to a total eclipse. But these were results that were produced in a lab setting and not ones that were taking place necessarily during an eclipse itself. Uh, for some of the other studies that have been done as well. So this is really an opportunity to get a lot of people's data and observations in one place for one time. And we talked a little bit about animals and spiders and stuff like that. What about plants? Do scientists know about how plants might change during eclipses? I personally haven't come across too many studies that have indicated that plants have a dramatic response to these events. However, it's pretty likely that we'll see at least something. Uh, All along the line of totality, you're going to see a dramatic 
change in environment. You're going to see a drop in temperature and a drop in light that becomes like twilight. Um, I'm sure you've heard that you can actually occasionally see a few stars if you're in the path of totality. It's not the same as clouds just passing over. So it really does start to simulate this twilight time. And we do know that a number of plants are responsive to that change during twilight time. Um, my personal favorite are morning glories and poppies that furl up. So it's entirely possible that we might see a reaction from plants as well. And so we're asking people to take a look um, at the greenery around them as well to see if they notice any changes. And how did the uh, Academy of Sciences come up with this project idea? So like I mentioned, the idea of anecdotal evidence of animals and sometimes plants responding to eclipses isn't new. And a couple of years ago, many institutions have been planning eclipse projects or how they want to get involved for years at this point. About two years ago, we were sitting in a conference room thinking about how we could make a difference uh, with this eclipse, how we could not only get people excited about it, but more importantly, for us at least, connecting to our to our mission statement. Uh, our mission statement is to explore, explain, and sustain life. So how do you connect a major solar event with what's happening here on Earth? And I had the opportunity back in 2012, as to, uh, 2012, yes, to actually see the Australian eclipse um, that took place over the Great Barrier Reef and uh, the coastline of Australia. And I have a very distinct memory being on the beach a little bit after sunrise as the eclipse was beginning and as totality went on hearing the jungle behind me go quiet. The birds behind me, if anybody's been to a jungle before, they're not quiet places. So to suddenly hear birds and other animals have the responses stop was a very dramatic feeling in addition to what was happening in the sky above me. Um, and so remembering this experience, uh, I thought that maybe we could ha use this opportunity. So we wanted other people to be able to learn from this experience as well and record what they observed. We were very fortunate in that we already had a tool at our disposal. Uh, the Academy owns the iNaturalist app, uh, which is used around the world for people to document biodiversity. Um, it's a citizen science project. So we already had a tool that, mil that hundreds of thousands of people use to record plants and animals. We're just asking them in this one particular project to take it a step further and not just observe that these plants and animals are there, but also to make a note on if they notice any changes in behavior or reaction. And how does this iNaturalist app, how does it work? What do people need to do to use it? So the first thing I recommend is, of course, downloading the app itself. It is a free app available on Android and iOS. And we encourage people to get familiar with it before attempting um, this project. So the iNaturalist app encourages you to mo use mostly photo documentation to take a picture of a plant or an animal or an insect that you see around you. And it will use your GPS data to um, pinpoint your location. So we have that information available as well. Uh, you can identify the species or you can put it to the rest of the users on the app to help identify it for you if you're not as familiar. Um, and so you can get identification um, information as well through this particular project. Um, and something, and you're able to make notes in the notes on your observation as well. So you can uh, input additional data in addition to the photo that you've, that you've taken. And when people are looking for animals or plants as well, um, what kind of animals or plants do you recommend? Are there any you're particularly looking for information on? We don't have any specific animals at this point. One of the things we're kind of curious about is whether what types of animals do respond in general. There have been studies that have been done on 
um, specifically orb weaver spiders who react to twilight by tearing down their um, tearing down their webs. We think that we might get a reaction uh, very visibly or audibly out of different bird species, either birds stopping to sing, starting to make noise, or even disappearing or reappearing. Potentially, we might see owls come out if they're in an area of totality uh, where it does get um, dark enough that they notice a distinct change. Um, Likewise, you might see the emergence of other nocturnal creatures like maybe bats. Um, There's also been a couple studies that have indicated that insects might have a response as well, but we don't have a lot of data on them. Uh, There's one study that have been done with ants, but potentially someone's interested uh, where they are. They're in an environment where they happen to see at their campsite a lot of grasshoppers, and they want to see if those grasshoppers are going to do anything. We're encouraging them to take a look at uh, take a look and observe those animals. Um, I grew up in a city, so I was not aware of this, but apparently if you happen to be on a farm, chickens might be great animals to observe. Apparently, they have very, um, some people are predicting that they'll have some strong reactions as well. So, really, anything that you're able to see around you, if you pick any one or two animals in particular, uh, one or two plants that you think that you know that might um, have some kind of reaction to light or temperature change, those are always good options. Uh, And from that, hopefully, we'll get a variety of responses. And if we're lucky, maybe we'll get an observation of an animal or even a plant that hasn't been documented before. And a lot of these, you're talking about wild animals, like wild birds and things like that. What if it runs away or flies <laughs> away? I mean, squirrels don't really hang out. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And that's um, and that is something that we are considering. What we're asking people to do um, as they kind of survey the environment that they're in, uh, the eclipse itself lasts quite a while. It's only totality that's that very brief uh, minute and a half to two and a half minute window. So hopefully that gives people enough time to pick something that might be sticking around. Um, but if not, we um, we ask people just to do the best they can. If they have a squirrel that's been around for 15 minutes or so, roughly in the area, and they're um, they're noticing maybe that suddenly this group of squirrels that were there all of a sudden none of them are there anymore after about 15 minutes as the sky gets darker. Maybe that's something that they can observe. Um, but definitely, um, the animals not being in the same location is something to consider. Uh, that's one of the reasons we are asking people if they're able to make two to three observations, preferably one that's before the eclipse starts to make the sky very dark, so maybe 30 minutes beforehand, one within five-ish minutes on either side of totality, and then one potentially up to 30 minutes afterwards. And hopefully with that range, it'll give you uh, something that you're able to observe and record. How many uh, responses are you hoping to get? Well, the only thing I really have to compare this to is a citizen science project that's incredibly similar done in India in 2010. Um, I believe the name of the project was Eclipse Watch. Uh, they were looking for specific animals, like uh, dogs, a couple different varieties of birds and bats and something else that I'm unfortunately blanking on. Um, and they were looking across India back in 2010. They were able to get a hundred different, 130 people to respond to their project. So I'm hoping that with citizen science really coming to its heyday in the last few years and with the advent of computers in your pocket that allow you to have apps that uh, can take photos and help document biodiversity um, in a way that we've never been able to before, hopefully the merger of those two was going is going to allow us to collect a lot more and get um, thousands of people involved. And you mentioned that the uh, citizen science project in India actually had them looking at dogs, for example. 
And a lot of people are probably going to try and home in on like a squirrel or a bird or a plant or a spider. But for a lot of people, dogs or cats might actually be the closest animal. Does Will this work for them? Absolutely. In this case, uh, we do recommend – it's not going to make much of a difference if your animal is inside. So if your cat's in the middle of the living room during the clips, uh, hopefully you're outside and not inside with the cat. Uh, so that may not be the best example. But if you have your family dog in the backyard with you and you're taking a look, that is another animal definitely to pay attention to. Uh, we're not being exclusive pretty much of any species. Um, in fact um, – I've heard that there is another project uh, that's looking specifically at captive animals taking place at the Nashville Zoo. The Nashville Zoo actually has the benefit on being in the line of totality, and um, they are using the iNaturalist platform as well. Different project um, in a different project than Life Responds, but still using the iNaturalist app to have guests at their zoo record captive animals. Uh, so obviously, there's not too many giraffes running around the United States um, in a native in native. Um, but we will have so we will have some information about um, non-native captive animals as well. That's really cool. How will you guys be using the data? So right now we are make our plan right now is to make the data as accessible as possible to as many people that want it. We'll spend some time doing some analytic analytics to get some highlights, but all of the raw data will be available right away through iNaturalist. One of the benefits of that app is that you can look through all the different projects. Um, none of it's really exclusive. It's all available for free. Um, and we'll take all of that raw data that we end up getting and making journal notes within the iNaturalist project for people who have joined the project to look back and see uh, what's been done with everybody else, um, the other participants. And we'll also end up posting the results to the Cal Academy's webpage. If anybody's interested in doing more with the data, we will make it available to them as well. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to be under the path of totality with a couple of dogs. So I Wonderful. might have to try this as well. Um, Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. And if I may say one more thing, we also really, even if you're not on the line of totality, we really do want everybody to be able to respond to this project. Uh, we do tend to focus on that very narrow strip that's going across the United States that's going to have uh, the, the maximum amount of darkness, the maximum effect you get with a totality. Um, but it's entirely possible that we might see responses from plants and animals outside of the line of totality as well. And having people all over the country, whether you're here in San Francisco where we're located and only getting an 80% or down on opposite ends of the country, you might be getting even less. That data is useful for us as well because what it will do is tell us if your dog down in Southern California at a 75% didn't notice anything, didn't seem to care, but the dogs that you had with you at totality seem to be acting a little bit strange. It tells us something about what light levels or what changes in the environment need to happen in order for animals to notice and cause a re and have a reaction. Awesome. Well, you heard Elise. Grab the app and on August 21st, make sure to look at the sky. You can learn more about the Life Responds Citizen Science Project at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, what do radio signals have to do with solar eclipses? Because we're about to find out. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. 
Welcome back. The solar eclipse seems like it's about light, right? Well, then why are scientists looking at radio waves? It's got to do with the ionosphere, an area of the atmosphere that's filled with ions and can reflect radio waves. And scientists want to use those radio waves to figure out just how a solar eclipse affects this part of our atmosphere. To hear more, I'm here with Kirsten Kirby Patel, an engineering professor at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, to hear more about the Eclipse Mob Project. Casey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start simple. What are radio waves? Well, radio waves are actually also light. You just can't see them because they're at a different frequency than the light that you can see. Um, but they work exactly the same way. They carry energy from place to place. And they're made up of electric fields and magnetic fields. Um, you, let's see, and if you have a cell phone or Wi-Fi or an antenna on your car, if you've ever listened to the radio, um, then you have interacted with radio waves. And what is the ionosphere and why are radio waves important there? Well, you got it right in the introduction. The ionosphere is a layer of ionized particles that's very high up in the atmosphere. And it has this special property that some radio waves at particular frequencies are refracted by it back down towards the Earth. The interesting thing about that is that because of that, we can sort of see around the horizon. Normally, radio waves would just escape into space, so there would be a limit to how far along the Earth's surface we could communicate, because they would just go off once we hit the curvature enough. Um, the ionosphere allows us to observe radio signals from very, very far away. And because the ionosphere is ionized by the sun's radiation, that behavior is different in the daytime than it is at night, which is why you might have heard about people being able to listen to AM radio stations that are very, very far away at night, but not during the day. So the ionosphere is actually very useful to us in our daily lives in terms of what it allows us to do with radio waves? Yeah. That's really cool. So what does a solar eclipse have to do with the ionosphere? A solar eclipse is an interesting thing for us to study right now because the ionosphere changes in um, in response to changes in its illumination from the sun. Normally from daytime to nighttime or from nighttime to daytime, there's sort of a slow transition between daytime radio wave propagation behavior and nighttime radio wave propagation behavior. During the eclipse, that transition happens a lot more quickly on the order of a couple hours rather than many, many hours or several hours at least. Um, that's interesting because the eclipse then doesn't have other variables that are also changing. The weather doesn't change. The angle of the sun's rays doesn't change during the eclipse. All of these things change from day to night or night to day, but they don't change during the eclipse. So it's an interesting time to study the ionosphere in a little bit more controlled environment. And obviously we know years in advance when an eclipse is going to happen. So we can plan ahead for it. And so you've developed something called the Eclipse Mob Project. What is it looking to do? The Eclipse Mob is crowdsourcing a measurement of radio wave propagation during this upcoming solar eclipse. Um, the interesting thing about Eclipse Mob is that we have participants who are not necessarily scientists. Um, a lot of them are hobbyists or educators. We have teachers and librarians and students, and they're all participating from all over the U.S. 
to report to us how they view one particular transmitter's signal strength varying during the eclipse. And what will that tell you if the signal strength varies or how much? Well, this particular behavior hasn't actually been studied very well before. It's pretty hard to do a large measurement. And in the past, it has been anyway. Um, the Eclipse Mob project has the advantage that now we have GPS and we have smartphones. The last solar eclipse that was visible from the continental U.S., the last total eclipse, was 1979, I want to say, and we didn't have smartphones and GPS back then. So past measurements either haven't had as many receiver sites participating because they had actual engineers and scientists who were um, employed by whatever project doing the recordings, or they had many, many receiver sites, but they didn't have an, a consistent and reliable way to report time and location for the recordings that they made. So you've been giving out kits for this project, and now people are also building their own kits to kind of help measure these radio waves. How are they going to be measuring them, and what are they going to do? Well, there's a pretty simple kit. We mail it out. It has an amplifier in it and a couple of multipliers and then basically just some power supply stuff. And they build this little kit circuit and they build an antenna to go with it. Um, the kit's interesting because it's designed not to use any power tools. The only thing you really need um, is the wire strippers that we give you in the kit. There's no soldering. There's no drilling. There's no cutting. It's really very straightforward. Um, and then it plugs into your smartphone. And we have a phone app that's still in testing right now, but it'll be released this week. And um, the phone app does some software-defined radio functions, and it automatically does the recording. That's awesome. So do people just stand outside with the recording on the day of the eclipse? Yeah, they go out, they set up their antenna. There's a little bit of alignment you have to do to make sure that it's pointed in the right direction. And then they hit record. Do people need to be under totality to do this? No, not at all. We actually get really interesting information from people who are not. And what are you going to do with the data? One of the things that we're going to do is look at how people's observed signal strength varies depending on where they are in relation to the transmitter and in relation to other receivers. So we, we expect to see if we have two receivers that are kind of close to each other, but not too close, we can compare those two. And that'll be really interesting. And what's this going to kind of tell us about the ionosphere that we didn't know before? Well, there's a short-term ionospheric behavior called ionospheric disturbances. Sometimes they're called sudden ionospheric disturbances. And they're unpredictable, and they cause the ionosphere to do something on a much shorter time scale than the day-to-night transition. Because they're unpredictable, they're really hard to measure. Um, but they can cause a lot of problems with your when you're trying to use the ionosphere for your communication or for your radar or whatever. Um, and the eclipse is actually a really good opportunity to model them because it's also a short-term thing that happens to the ionosphere, but we know when it's going to happen. And you mentioned you've been giving out kits. People can also build their own radio receivers. Is it too late? Can people still participate? It is not too late. We have a parts list on our website. So we have given out all the kits that we had for free, but people can get their own parts. And if they do that and put their kit together, then they can download the app and upload their data with us. That's awesome. So Casey, thank you so much for coming on to our radio waves for this project. Of course. Thank you for having me. We've linked to more information about the Eclipse Mob project at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you'll also find the rest of our many Eclipse links and links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show or leave us a glowing review.
We've also got a Patreon where for just the cost of a cup of coffee, you can help our hardworking podcast crew bring scientists direct to your ears every week. Thanks for listening. Look up at the sky on August 21st, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 